Father, it's our heart's cry today that you would be glorified and honored in us. We pray that all glory would go to Christ. And Lord, in the brokenness and grief of this world, we look forward to the day that you do make all things new. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly, restore the brokenness, reverse the curse, God, and speak life to dead places. Lord, even today, would your spirit speak life into our hearts as we hear from your word? Would you be ministering to each heart that is here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Hope you uh, don't take the singing together for granted anymore. <laughs> the, the power of the voice is wonderful to just join together and praise the Lord. I think it can sometimes be easy to be a Christian when you're at church. Right? To put on a brave face, smile, and act like you've got it all together for a couple of hours, among people who hopefully like you. But what about when you're at home, when you spend, where you spend the majority of the hours of your life, actually? When you kick off your shoes, flop onto a couch, prepare meals, do the dishes, take out the garbage, go to sleep, wake up groggy, and try to relate to whichever humans you've chosen or been forced to live with for hours on end. Is it as easy to be and act like a follower of Jesus then, at home? For that matter, how should your faith, how should the life that you have now in Jesus play out at home? Today, we're beginning a new series as a church that we're calling Home Life. And I believe that there are a plethora of challenges we face in our homes, whether we live in a mansion or a dorm, whether we live alone or with a herd of humans. Over the last few years, you've likely spent more time at home than ever. And that's maybe seemed to expose some cracks in our foundations or our walls. So, over the next few months, we want to let God's Word speak into our home lives. And what we're going to do, we're going to be centering this series around the relationships that we have in our homes. Though, if you live by yourself, don't worry, you will not be ignored in this series. But today, and for the next seven weeks, we'll be looking at marriage specifically. And why start with marriage? Well, God starts there. When God first established a human home, he established a marriage. And I believe that there is no greater or more foundationally important human relationship than marriage. Now, we have many married folks in our church, 
and we have many unmarried people. And if that's you, you might wonder, why should unmarried people learn about marriage? Well, most of you, I know, do desire to be married. And many of you will be married one day. So I hope that this can help you prepare for that day. Maybe even help you think through who you should pursue as a potential spouse. Others of you may be pretty down on marriage for any number of reasons. Maybe your family was broken by a marriage breaking apart, and you know the pain that that can cause. Maybe some of your friends got married and became obsessed with marriage and family, or they got consumed by conflict, and you saw this. So you may be opposed to marriage, or at least been soured on it. You might fear it. Or maybe you've bought into some of our culture's negative ideas about marriage, seeing it as stifling, outdated, complicating, oppressive, or as just a piece of paper. I want to affirm really to all of you the goodness of marriage based on God's word, while hopefully giving you some better balance in your heart and your life, because we should neither idolatrously over-desire marriage nor mistakenly dismiss marriage. And for those of you who are married already, I'm sure you already know why we need to talk about it. I hope this series can actually help you correct things in your marriage that could be harming it so that your marriage could be healthy and happy and holy for the Lord's honor. And I think we all could really use a renewed, realistic, biblical, beautiful vision for marriage today. So let's begin by opening up to a very hard-to-find passage. Genesis 1. I think that's on page number... (laughs) This chapter, of course, recounts God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And after each part of his creation, it says, And God saw that it was good. Towards the end of the chapter, we see the pinnacle of his creation, which is humanity. And look with me, starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does that mean, though, to to be made in God's image? Well, if I took a picture of you on my phone, that picture is an image of you. It's, It's not, it would be ridiculous to say that that image is you, Right? It's not. It's a, it's a digital file. It's a pixelated JPEG on your phone. But at the same time, it would reflect what you're like. 
It's an impression of you. Similarly, being made in God's image doesn't make us God, but it does make us like him. We're meant to reflect him. And much more than just a still photograph would do, we're meant to actively represent him and advance his causes here on earth. Now, imaging God is something that is shared by every human. It's the core of everyone's identity. So, what does that have to do with marriage? Well, nothing at first. However, in the very next verse, God gives humans a mandate, a job to do together, a mission, part of which we will see should only be carried out in marriage, within marriage. Additionally, in Mark 10, Jesus quotes these verses. He says, male and female, he created them in God's image. And he says that this, is having, this has a direct bearing on marriage and how God designed it. I think that that's the main thrust here, that this is telling us how God designed us as humans first, but, but that God also is the designer of human marriage. Marriage is his idea and his design. And in a day that we are quite confused as to what's the point or the purpose of marriage altogether, it's good for us to go back to the designer and his original design and intent for marriage. Because anything that is contrary to his design would be a distortion or even an abuse of it. There's a reason that we don't use frying pans as tennis rackets or phones as hammers. Because we know that the original designer of these things established their purpose. And whoever first invented the frying pan said, this is for frying eggs and bacon. Whoever made the first smartphone would be appalled if he saw you using it to hit nails. We should be asking, what is marriage for and why should people get married? But we should seek our answers from the one who dreamed up the idea in the first place. His what for or why are so much more important than our own. So, if you are married, do you want what God wants for your marriage? And if you're not married... Will what God wants shape what you desire or pursue? We may sometimes think of God as a kind of lifestyle coach or personal advisor or wise old guru that we seek advice from. We think that if we just do enough good for him, that he'll get behind our life goals, he'll go after what we want, he'll cheer us on, empowering us, helping us to achieve what we want to achieve. But no, and we should be asking God what he wants and aligning ourselves behind his goals. After all, his purposes are in line with how both the world and how people are designed. What God wants really cuts with the grain of the universe. And therefore, 
God's purposes and God's goals, not ours, are actually what are best for us. Okay, then. What is God's design for marriage? I think Genesis will tell us three main things about it. First, marriage is designed by God with a grand mandate. It's no small, puny purpose. Marriage is designed by God with a grand mandate. Let's finally read verse 28 here. It says, and God blessed them. Isn't that beautiful? God wants to bless us. He's joyfully after our good. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is what's called the creation mandate given to humanity to fulfill. Five commands in one. Be fruitful. So this is something that a man and woman can do together. Multiply. So become many more than you are now. Have lots of kids. Fill the earth. Spread out. Like two people can't do that. But multiplying generations can. Subdue it. So tend it. Use it. Care for it. Cultivate it. Tame it. Harvest it. It's made for you. And have dominion. Rule the earth as God's sub-rulers and representatives. Now, this mandate was also, it was given to the entire human race as a whole, not just married people. Like we don't only fulfill this mandate through bearing children. We also fulfill it through working at our jobs, helping raise children, even if they're not our own, building culture, taking care of and, and using our natural resources, even gardening goes into this mandate. But all people are called to live in line with this mandate and serve the Lord in his world. However, I think that there are distinctive ways that marriages will carry this out. In particular, God's very first command directly applies to those who are married. And that is to multiply image bearers. To multiply image bearers. Like if, if humanity was to truly subdue and govern a vast world, that would require a lot of people. And so God gave this blessing of, of maleness and femaleness and multiplication. Of course, this can be done outside marriage. But God's word consistently says it shouldn't be. Marriage is the proper and the healthiest place for childbearing and childrearing. It's also the consistent message of Scripture that marriage was designed for doing so. In Malachi 2.15, for example, it says about marriages, did God not make them one with a portion of their, the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
godly offspring. So one of God's main purposes of marriage is to see his image multiplied in lots of offspring. And more than just that, he wants the offspring to become godly and live for him. Which, by the way, you can help with even if you don't have kids of your own. We're all called to to look after the next generation. Now we may ask, what's the point for married couples who are unable to be fruitful and multiply? Because this can be a, a really painful question for many people who have either lost children, been unable to conceive, or are too old to do so. To all who aim to be fruitful and are prevented from doing so for whatever mysterious reason, know that God sees you. Know that God loves you. And know that God cares about your pain. It genuinely hurts because a genuine blessing has been withheld from you. But let me be extremely clear. This does not make your marriage empty or pointless in the least. This is only one of the major reasons God made us male and female and gave us marriage. So it's not make it empty or pointless. God cares. But the second main part we see of God's grand mandate for marriage is to rule the earth. And this doesn't just mean like trying to literally rule the earth. It means the human race governing the earth. And this can be done by any human being, but marriage can help this be accomplished. This is often overlooked, but but one reason that God established marriage is to give stability and structure to society. Right? Marriages help men and women rule the world by keeping it in ordered place. And one of these ways, marriage puts moral boundaries given for our good on the area of sexuality in order to, to help prevent culture from descending into sexual chaos like ours has. Nonetheless, in God's grand plan... Marriages help preserve stability in our ruling over the earth. And third, I believe God's grand mandate for human marriage includes that we are to display God's goodness. To display God's goodness. This might not usually be included in God's mandate for marriage, but I think it's very implied here. There's a reason that after saying multiple times, it was good, it was good, it was good, that after God created mankind and established their mandate, he says in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. In the Bible, marriage is seen as a very good thing distorted by sin, yes, and sometimes destroyed by sinners, yes, but inherently very good. 
Take Proverbs 18, for example, which says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Same goes for finding a good husband. And it's not saying that, that wives are a good find, but husbands, well. No, it's saying that marriage is a good thing. Now, we have a word we use to describe favor from the Lord, particularly undeserved favor. Grace. Marriage really is a form of grace from God. It's a gift, an undeserved blessing from him. So if you've got a good spouse, and I think from this verse, especially guys, if you've got a good wife, thank the Lord. (laughs) Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. You may think, but what about when my marriage doesn't feel this way? When it feels maybe more grisly than gracious? More like prison than precious? Well, I think that that only proves my point. Because you know, you recognize inherently that there's something wrong there. Tim Keller is realistic. He says, marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. Marriage isn't easy. It's sometimes really hard to unite two lives together, and yet it's still good. And when our marriages do not display the goodness of God, that's a problem. And so if that's you, I would would urge you to make repairing your marriage, to getting back to God's design for it, a huge priority in your life. Pray, read, talk, confess, romance, get counseling, do whatever it takes. Super important. But what I see here is if men and women united together in pursuit of God's mandate were called very good, it tells me that marriage can display a deep primal form of goodness. God's goodness. It can display that. Now, does God's grand mandate here for marriage sound like how people tend to view marriage today? Not at all. Pessimism is pervasive these days. We have, as a culture, we have completely lost the plot. Most see marriage as an optional, temporary sexual contract for personal fulfillment. Not as a part of a grand vision to multiply, protect, and display goodness. It's night and day difference. And God's vision should be freeing for us. Because this means we can lose the crushing burden to fulfill each other. And instead, look together 
to the only one who can truly satisfy and fulfill us. As we continue on here, Genesis 2 expands our vision through another version of the creation story. It's the same story, but if, if Genesis 1 is like looking up at a starry sky, Genesis 2 is like looking into a telescope at one object to focus on that. And the focus here is on the creation of mankind and the union between man and woman. And we're going to see that marriage is designed by God with loving purposes. Marriage is designed by God with shared, beneficial, loving purposes. Now, it might be hard for you to tell the difference there between the first and second point I've given you. Essentially, point one is, describes what the institution of marriage as a whole is for. Okay? All marriages. Point two describes the specific purposes of our personal marriages. Now, there's crossover there. But this gets at the question, if you are married, why are you married? Why are you married? Read with me. We're going to start this time in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then we get a surprising comment. The first mention of anything in existence being not good. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Like, how could anything be not good in the Garden of Eden? And this is an unspoiled paradise, literally. Sin and death have not entered the picture yet. And yet God says that something is decidedly wrong with the picture. It is not good that the man should be alone. But this makes sense, right, if we think about it? Because an intrinsic part of our triune God's nature is love. Everything else flows from his nature. So thus, we live in a relational universe. Relationship is natural. Aloneness is abnormal. But what does alone mean here? After all, God doesn't say it's not good that man should be lonely. It's not what he says. Yet, that's often how we interpret it. As if woman was made to, to meet man's relational needs. Now, of course, loneliness isn't a good thing, but that's not what God was saying here. We tend to interpret this through a 21st century lens, and that leads us to thinking something like, unless we get married, we will not be loved like God intended, and we're bound to be lonely. That's simply not true. The truth is, earlier in chapter 2, God made man in order to work the garden and care for his world. And in that context, we then hear that the man is alone. And God says he'll make a helper 
for him? Why a helper? Why not a companion or a friend or a lover? Might it be that it was good to have helpers in taking care of God's world? And therefore, it wasn't good that man had to do this good work alone. Also, why make a woman as the helper and not another man? Like, wouldn't, it, wouldn't a, a big, strong, burly man likely be of more help in agriculture? Might it be that helping also had something to do with having children? After all, if one gardener wasn't enough for the garden. Neither would two be. Making the helper female also likely had something to do with sexual intimacy. Like God wanted people to delight in their love for each other and their mission for him. Christopher Ashe says it well. He says, this is delight with a shared purpose, intimacy with a common goal, and companionship in a task that stretches beyond the boundaries of the couple themselves. Marriage is not God's provision to meet your or my needs. Marriage has bigger purposes in the world than meeting our needs. When we approach marriage expecting our needs to be met, we have not understood the real nature of love, and we are sowing the seeds of destruction in our marriages. So, is your marriage meeting your needs? That's the wrong question. Rather, we should ask, is your marriage pursuing the purposes God has set for it? I'll quickly give you three purposes that I see here. We've already been getting at them. First, to care for creation. To care for creation. This purpose would include creation care and procreation or reproduction. Essentially, all the loving work that goes with the mandate we saw in Genesis 1. Ray Ortland comments that as a helper, the woman was made to complement and support the man and to strengthen his exertions for God in this world. You catch that? To strengthen his exertions for God in this world. So, if you're on the lookout for a spouse, man or woman, look for someone like that. Look for someone, not for someone that you have to drag along in your passion for God. Or not for someone who's going to drag you down. But look for someone who will stand by your side working for God's glory. Side note for the ladies. Don't be insulted by being called a helper here. This has absolutely nothing to do with superiority of position at all. It has to do with being a genuine positive influence and partner for someone else. In fact, God himself is said to be our helper in Scripture using the same word used here. You're in good company as a helper. But look how the story continues in verse 19. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God had a reason for this parade of critters. And it wasn't just to give them creative names like rhinoceros or weasel. God wanted the man to become aware of his aloneness, to become aware of his need for another like him. So God was awakening his sense of need and preparing him for a spectacular gift. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now think, God could have created the woman, or Eve, exactly as he did Adam, from dust, right? Or he could have created her the same way he did everything else, simply by speaking it into existence. So why did he make the woman from the man's rib? God deliberately took something from Adam's Adam's body to make Eve. And the first recorded words of any human ever are in verse 23, and they emphasize that point. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I got the very sight of a woman, man breaks into poetry or a song. (laughs) All you husbands who watch your bride walk down the aisle know the feeling. But Adam's not just going, finally, you're not a monkey, you're a fish. (laughs) No, he's not. He's saying, you come from my very flesh and bones. We're one flesh. And that's why the next verse, verse 24, goes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does that mean, one flesh? Probably the most helpful explanation I've heard is from Aaron Cerrone, and he says this, In marriage, the one flesh union between a husband and wife is analogous to the previous union between Adam and his rib. Their lives are so bound up together that what impacts one will also impact the other. This emphasizes the profound closeness Unity and complete oneness shared by husband and wife. This union between the two cannot be severed without profound damage to who they are. A couple's sexual union symbolizes, strengthens, and reminds them of this profound unity. And I think that brings us actually to a second loving purpose for our marriage. And that's to delight in oneness. To delight in oneness. That's really the underlying purpose of sex, beyond just having children. It is a beautiful blessing given by God for his children to delight in. 
Yes, we humans have creatively corrupted sex in about every way imaginable. But it was created good and holy. And it can still be experienced in this way. How do I know God approves of holy sex? Well, Jesus says in Mark 10 that God himself actually joins a husband and wife together as one flesh. He does that. He creates the union that is celebrated and strengthened by sex. And here in Genesis, God himself, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's like God himself essentially walks Eve down the aisle. Verse 22, it says, In the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and God brought her to the man. He's walking her down. One author said it was like God bent down and touched the man and said, Son, you can wake up now. I have one more creature for you to name. I'm very interested to see your response to this one. And with relief and love at first sight, the man exults in her. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the chapter ends with the one flesh union being enjoyed with absolutely no shame. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You might ask, though, I thought you said that marriage isn't the answer to loneliness, but it sure looks like they're made to be companions and lovers here. And you're right, they are. Let me maybe put it another way. Marriage can indeed be a remedy for loneliness, but it is not the remedy for loneliness. God's answer for loneliness is fellowship of any kind, and you do not have to be married for that. My point earlier was to not see marriage as the ultimate answer, or else it becomes something that you can't live without. And ultimately, it becomes an idol. And that leads into the most important purpose, actually, of all in our marriages. And that's to serve the Creator. Marriage is designed by God with loving purposes. And the chief love of all is love for God. Marriage is an ultimate. Like Jesus tells us that all human marriages are going to end one day. Death will part us, and our marriages won't carry over into eternity. Now, it's not as sad as it might sound, because actually marriage points to greater eternal realities. But if you're married, I want you to seriously contemplate this question. What is your marriage for? What is your marriage for? Because if we get married to serve ourselves, selfishness will erode our relationship. It will fail to satisfy us anyway. And it will crush our spouse under a burden of expectations that they can't bear. Or, 
Maybe we get married less selfishly, but we get married only in order to serve our spouse. And if we do that, they become our idol. And I'll tell you this. Spouses make absolutely horrendous gods. Marriage is a wonderful gift. But be careful because its love can eclipse all other loves. If you're unmarried, but you're looking for someone who both accepts you just the way you are and fulfills all of your desires, prepare yourself for disenchantment and disillusionment. Christopher Ash puts it well. It says, we were not made to gaze forever into the eyes of another human being and find in him or her all we need. And if we think we were, then we are bound to be disappointed. If I pursue any goal except the honor of God, then I am worshiping an idol. Surprisingly, the key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. Now let's, let's talk with our spouses if we're married and purpose together that our marriages will serve our creator. And take the time to, to discuss how you might already be serving God through your marriage. And then talk about how God could be leading you to serve him afresh or more, whether that's in hospitality or service or generosity or stewardship or parenting or so on. Really, this is, it's love overflowing out from you to your kids, to your neighbors, to everyone around you for God's glory. Like what or who is your marriage for? How might your marriage be more for your Lord? And if you're single, your purpose isn't really different from this. It just plays out differently. Don't live your life in suspended animation just waiting for a spouse to help you. No, remember your creator and serve him now. He is worthy of it. The last point I want to show you today is very important, but I'm going to keep it brief for today. As we talk about marriage being the design of God, it brings up more than just the mandate and purposes of our marriage, but what marriage actually is. Right? In our world today, marriage has been redefined in many different ways. But if God invented marriage... If he designed marriage, then he absolutely should be the one to define it. And I, what I think we can see from Genesis 2 is that marriage is designed by God with clear definition. Marriage is designed by God with clear definition. We see, and this will help us as we go forward throughout our series, but we see this now in verse 24, where the narrator interrupts the story to teach us something. Is therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So he's saying that the first marriage, which was initiated and blessed by God, is to be the model for all marriages that come after. Despite what today's activists, 
legislators or teachers say, marriage is the design of God. It is God-given, God-blessed, and a God-defined institution. So, what is God's definition of marriage? Well, first, it's designed to be between one man and one woman. You can see that clearly here. Therefore, a man, a man, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Singular. So this is contrary to all sexual distortions from same sex to multiple partners to animals to children. Like marriage is not just meant to be between one man and one woman, but defined as such. Second, marriage is to be one man and one woman in an exclusive and intimate relationship. In an exclusive and intimate relationships. Spouses are to, to hold fast, it says, to one another and no other in a one flesh union. Marriage is meant to be intimate, as we've seen, and that intimacy is exclusive to one's spouse. Faithfulness really is at the heart of marriage, and this stands against all adultery, fornication, and lust. Any sex that is outside marriage. And finally, marriage is one man and one woman in an exclusive and intimate relationship until death. Till death do us part. As long as we both shall live. Marriage should always be intended to be mortally permanent. So take your vows seriously. This stands against most situations of divorce or remarriage. And this is why Jesus said, when he's quoting from Genesis 2, he concluded, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Until death. So, marriage is designed by God with a grand mandate, loving purposes, and with clear definition. However, there is a massive complication to all that we've talked about today. As we don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world anymore. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And in Genesis 3, both man and woman together fall into horrific sin and brokenness. And God's curse ends up marring marriage along with every human relationship. Like if, if Genesis 1 and 2 show us the glory of marriage as it was designed by the Creator, Genesis 3 shows us the brokenness of marriage, which we keep passing on in every generation since. So what do we do with that? Do we then give up on marriage as a failed institution? Didn't work. Or do we despair over ever seeing growth, harmony, or holiness in our marriages? Do we avoid marriage like the plague since it's been so broken? Or let me propose another response. We look back again to the God who designed marriage, and we see, even there, in that marriage itself points to a solution 
to all our sin and brokenness. See, when God designed marriage, he had another greater romance in mind. The love story between him and his fallen people. Ephesians 5 quotes Genesis 2 again, and then adds something very important. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, when we see God's design for marriage, we should see God's love for us. The love that would send Jesus all the way to the cross in order to save us. The love that doesn't want to leave us in our sin and our brokenness and our corruption and our failure, but wants to purify us and help us become holy again. Marriage is a picture that's meant to show us how Christ will hold fast to us and help us. you maybe see his love for the first time today, I would urge you to turn from your sin and turn to him. Turn to Christ now. For all of us, as we think on this, let's catch a, a renewed vision for just how glorious God intends marriage to be. His marriage is not just designed by God. It's designed for God. It's designed for God. So let's draw close to him and let his love overflow into our marriages, into all of our homes, and our redeemed marriages can indeed reflect his love and resound his praise. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us as we study these things, as we learn from you, your design for things. Help us to, to be able to see through the lies and deception of our world around us. Help us hold fast to what is good. Would you open our hearts to receive and even today, help our hearts to respond well to what we have heard. May your spirit be at work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.